Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Venture capitalist Scott Hartley first heard the terms fuzzy and techie while studying political science at Stanford. If you'd majored in the humanities or social sciences, you were a fuzzy. If you'd majored in computer sciences, you were a techie. And the default assumption was that it's the techies who drive innovation. But in his book, The Fuzzy and the Techie, Why Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World, Hartley says that it's actually fuzzies, not techies, who are playing key roles in developing the most creative and successful business ideas. Scott Hartley will be presenting at Dixie State University. Uh, He's the inaugural speaker at Dixie State University's Human Tech Speaker Series, part of their move to Utah Tech University and a human-centered approach to technology mission. That lecture is 4 p.m. on February 10th at the Dixie State University campus, Dolores Dory Eccles Fine Arts Center Concert Hall. It's a free public event. All are invited to attend. Uh, Scott Hartley, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure to be here. So... um, let me just jump in. You, uh, I, I guess this came out of, I'm, I'm sure this came out of your experience at Stanford, right? So tell us about Fuzzy and Techie. Yeah, so so to give you a little bit of sense of, of my background, um, you know, I had the fortune of, of growing up in uh, Silicon Valley, sort of through the boom and the bust cycle of uh, the early dot-com years. And I think I found myself pursuing, you know, my own personal passions to study uh, philosophy, political science, um, international development, subjects that I didn't think would lead me back to the tech world. Um, but then fast forward to graduation, somehow I um, ended up working at Google and answering this sort of perennial question from my extended family as to what do you exactly do at Google? I thought it was only engineers that, that worked at tech companies. And so I started um, kind of exploring the concept at that point where I said, well, you know, actually within these large tech organizations, it's it's broadly about problem solving. Um, and I have the skills to problem solve. You know, I have the ability to communicate effectively and to write well and to think critically. And so I started to kind of uh, defend my own position, so to speak, uh, within companies like like Google. Um, and then when I when I later went to Sand Hill Road as a venture capitalist, uh, I sort of heard the drumbeat uh, again, this narrative that STEM was really the only uh, path to, uh, to success in the technology world. And we heard, uh, you know, very famous and incredible uh, founders and operators like Vinod Kosla, the founder of Sun Microsystems, saying, you know, that, that much of what was found in the liberal arts was, was no longer relevant. Um, and venture capitalists like Mark Andreessen, the founder of uh, Netscape in the early 1990s, saying, you know, that, that the liberal arts, uh, the, the market for philosophy majors was thin in the market. Um, you know, and I think taking a step back, um, really when we talk about liberal arts, um, we're talking about these these ancient terms of artis liberalis, which was about freeing the mind. It was about providing people with holistic education um, and exposure to all the different subjects. You know, so I think we we tend to think of uh, liberal arts and humanities in the same bucket, but actually the liberal arts are more expansive than that. They include things like mathematics and biology, and it's really about how do we provide students with the ultimate toolbox and tool toolkit to think critically and solve some of the biggest problems we have in the world today. Um, and so, so really, to, to kind of answer your question, the, uh, the narrative that I, that I saw running through Silicon Valley was that STEM was really the only answer uh, to problem solving. And really, it's about both sides of the coin. Right? It's about sort of the study of the, the natural world around us, which is the, the sciences, and then it's a study of the human condition within that natural world, which are the humanities. And I think without both, we really fail to solve problems effectively. And this is, I know this is a perception, a strong perception out there. I don't know if it's, maybe it's waning a bit, but um, we famously had a state senator here in Utah a couple of years ago warn about liberal arts degrees as degrees to nowhere. Uh, that's, I think that's still a kind of a, a perception in some circles. Yeah, so, you know, I think that there's there's a broader sort of pedagogical debate about the purpose of education, right? Is, is education... Uh, a security policy for uh, future future employment is it a uh, is it an insurance policy is it a uh, is it a path to uh, optimizing for the greatest financial return for for you and your family or is it about training citizens uh, to be the most effective uh, global citizens that they, they can be I think that um, you know going back to uh, 1959 there was an incredible lecture that happened at Cambridge University by a gentleman named uh, Charles Percy Snow um, and CP Snow he delivered this lecture that was uh, became known as the Two Cultures Lecture, where he lamented um, the sort of chasm on campus between the sciences and the humanities and how really 
Cambridge. It was about bringing together the two sides of the same coin. And I think that the short-sightedness today, when we when we think about uh, just technology in, in the abstract, and we think about terms like artificial intelligence or big data or any sort of buzzword du jour, um, we forget that there are two sides of this coin. And when we talk about things like AI, um, you know, we're really on the flip side talking about the ethical questions of what AI does. You know, when we're talking about um, code, um, on the flip side, it's it's the engineers who provide the context and they ask the questions. Um, someone at Palantir famously said, you know, technology doesn't ask the moral questions we do, right? And so I think it's looking beneath the hood of how do we train um, and educate people to uh, ask these tough questions. Um, and I think that that really requires, uh, you know, broad-based education that's not purely vocationally oriented, but it really provides people with, with the lens and the, and the toolkit to ask critical questions and have the confidence to ask those critical questions of uh, everything today, you know, including our technology. So in the book, you tell, uh, you know, several stories, uh, founders of companies and, and such coming from the, the so-called, you know, fuzzy world. I was very struck by the, <clears throat> the opening story in your book, uh, the story of Caitlin Gleason, uh, founder and CEO of Eligible. Could you t- talk a little bit about, uh, about her? Yeah, so you know what's what's really quite quite fun and fascinating is you know we we all uh, we study certain things we we you know put our diploma on the wall we frame it we say you know it's a one and done sort of educational moment. There's a term in engineering uh, where you launch a product, but when you launch a product, it's in beta, and it means that you still don't quite know where it's going. You still are experimenting, and I think that you know when we launch people, so to speak, when we graduate, um, we're not fully complete projects, right? We we have a diploma, we have a, a degree and a skill set, but we're really still in beta, and it's about keeping our um, our educational uh, ears open and sort of uh, being able to continually develop and grow. And so, Caitlin is an incredible example of somebody who is a theater arts major, um, came out of uh, Stony Brook University in New York on Long Island. Uh, you know, many people said, what are you possibly going to do with a, a theater arts major? And I often make the joke as a venture capitalist that I say, you know, people often think that my job is finance and that an entrepreneur's job is business. But I think of my job as psychology and an entrepreneur's job is theater. Um, and so when I look across the table to somebody presenting their business idea to me, it's about their ability to sell, their ability to convince, their ability to um, put together a story and a narrative. And uh, as Caitlin said really, really aptly, you know, the, the, the page, uh, the words on the page for any script, whether you're performing on Broadway or anywhere, the words are always the same. But it's how you tell the story and it's how you imbue it with authenticity and with uh, passion that really comes through. And so if you think about uh, building a business, um, these are the exact skill sets um, that are required to convince somebody effectively to work for your company, to fundraise for your company, to, to convince uh, markets to adopt your, your technology. And so it's, uh, it's, it's no wonder that someone like Caitlin has become uh, an incredibly powerful and, and successful founder in the digital health world, um, not because she's an expert in digital health, but because as a theater arts major, she had um, both the gumption and the and the ability to sort of uh, uh, succeed despite uh, getting getting you know getting taken off uh, not getting parts um, having sort of the adversity of, of that experience and then having this ability to really storytell um, and I think if you look across some of the most successful cases in the tech world as you alluded to um, what's interesting is and part of what drove the narrative and impetus for writing the fuzzy and the techie was looking around Silicon Valley and hearing this drumbeat of STEM and then saying, well, wait a minute, you know, the founders of LinkedIn and PayPal and Slack are all philosophers. And the founder of Reddit uh, is a history major. You know, the founder of Salesforce is an English major. The CEO of YouTube studied history and literature. And you say, wait a minute, you know, these are really people that have a broad-based set of skills that are storytellers, they're, uh, they're, they're effective leaders. And, um, you know, and, and they learned that through a broad-based liberal arts education. And yet the stereotypes persist, right? This is uh, probably not news to a lot of to some people. News to me, right, <laughs> that all these founders are come out of uh, come out of the uh, humanities. It is. It is. I think it's um, what's interesting about, uh, I think, a book like The Fuzzy and the Techie and, you know, speaking about it here in 2022, um, you know, the book came out in uh spring of 2017, is that these are perennial topics, and these are topics that, that haven't gone away. Um, and the fact that 
um, these skill sets are are still at the core of of, of all these debates. You know, we, we tend to think of technology in terms of singular moments, um, singular sort of. Uh, we, we tend to think of them in these, these terms, like you know, artificial intelligence or, or big data or autonomous vehicles. Um, to give you an example from the autonomous autonomous vehicle space. Um, you know, you tend to think of these as engineering problems of how do we get a car to navigate roads effectively. But when you actually talk to some of the leaders of the programs at Tesla or Google's Waymo or at Nissan, um, the, the woman who runs the program at Nissan is actually a PhD anthropologist. And the way that she would tell you about um, how they problem solve is that these are deeply human uh, problems that relate to um, communication, they relate to culture, they relate to all sorts of uh moments where you can imagine if you're building a Nissan car that's supposed to drive autonomously both in Tokyo, New York City, and in Salt Lake City, um, there's very different uh, modalities to how people communicate, uh, to how they hand gesture, to how they, the car needs to navigate some of those roads. And so if you think about the complexity of some of these, uh, some of these topics, it's really uh, no wonder that it requires a plurality of, of disciplines uh, to solve. Um, and moreover, I think, you know, within entrepreneurship as to why some of these founders are in all these backgrounds, um, Stuart Butterfield, who is the, the CEO of Slack, um, he has a really wonderful line where he talks about the having not one but two degrees in philosophy really prepared him well to be an entrepreneur because uh, what's, what's more in entrepreneurship than being able to navigate your way through the dark without clear answers? And when you think about philosophy, you're navigating your way through the dark without clear answers as to, you know, what does it mean to lead a moral life? Uh, these are questions that don't have answers. These are questions that we, we probe and we debate, um, very similar to, you know, launching a product or finding product market fit. There's no one right answer. It's about being able to navigate in ambiguity. Um, and so I think that the skill sets, um, you know, when you listen to somebody like Stuart talk about his degrees in philosophy preparing him well for the job of a CEO, um, we tend to have a bit more appreciation for, for what these skills uh, really provide, not sort of the, the parallel tracking of uh, what is your degree title and what is your job title. You know, it's not such that you need to study philosophy and become a philosopher. Um, it happens to be that you study engineering and you can become an engineer. But um, I think the, the sort of broader thinking around the applicability of the skill sets, not just the degree titles, is what matters. I'll talk just a little, return a little, talk a little bit more about uh, your journey. So, philosophy and political science, right? Um, wh what was your original thought? What, what did you think you were going to do? You know, I think originally I, I probably thought I would go down the, the, the well tread path of, uh, of, of going to law school or, you know, sort of seeking a vocational uh, track like that. Um, I think what is interesting is uh, when, you, when you think back to, you um, in some of these debates about, you know, is it STEM or is it, is it the humanities, uh, you realize that it oftentimes comes full circle. Uh, two of the last books that I've, I've read recently, um, both are, are, are really interesting examples of this. Um, I read a book by a guy named Carlo Rovelli, who is a, uh, he's a cosmologist. He's a, uh, you know, astro, astrophysicist and cosmologist. And really when you read his book, um, Reality is Not What It Seems, it's, it's borderline philosophy, right? And we realize that um, it's, it's, it's incumbent on us to, uh, to sort of see this as a full circle. And similarly, um, another book that I read recently was, was by a, a biologist named um, E.O. Wilson, Edward O. Wilson, on, uh, you know, here's a biologist who studied his entire career, um, the life of ants, um, talking about the origins of creativity and sort of the, the learnings that he could draw out of, of, of ant colonies uh, for binary systems and uh, AI and the origins of creativity. So I think for me, um, realizing the, the sort of background that I had um, lent itself for me to explore all sorts of things um, kind of led me back to, uh, to technology, which was really the, the driver, I think, of the economic engine of our generation, um, and then to venture capital, which just happens to be, um, you know, an, an incredible place to sit and be able to observe ideas uh, across the spectrum. Um, and as I said, it's, it's, it's a people job. You know, I think that that's the, the takeaway of a lot of these things is that uh, we, we put labels on certain jobs, say this is, uh, this is tech or this is finance or this is what, whatever it might be. And I think if you look at the tasks within each job, you know, and this gets to maybe another conversation that we'll have around um, automation and the future of, of AI and, and where are the inroads um, in the job market. 
But I think that when you look under the hood of anything that we label a job, a job actually has a, a series of tasks, and those tasks run the gamut of things that are very human and things that are uh, somewhat robotic, right? And I think that where technology will make inroads is in um, automating some of those uh, more rote and routine aspects of our of our jobs. Those, those tasks might go away, but our jobs won't go away. And so I think um, for me, it was really a journey, and it still is a journey. I think all of us, you know, it's not that we arrive in one particular place. It's that we are always in beta, right? We are always learning. And I think that that's um, one of the key takeaways uh, that I would hope is that um, the fuzzy and the techie is about um, providing people with exposure to the liberal arts holistically, where hopefully we're training curious minds that continue to learn and continue to grow, because that's the that's the biggest um, antidote to, to automation, right, is, is flexibility. Yeah, I definitely want to get into the automation. Um, we'll, we'll do that a little later in the program, but... but um... Yeah, yeah, that's very true. We're always in beta, aren't we? Um, I want to ask you about you. You you took this journey, of course, you to philosophy, political science, maybe heading to law school, whatever. You end up at uh, Google, uh, so you're essentially a fuzzy in a tech world. What was there an aha moment that where you where you realized moments where you fully realized, hey, I've I've got some very valuable skills here um, that can uh, that can be applied in the tech world. I think, I think it. I think it was um, for me. The moment was probably about a year into my role at Google, where um, I was uh, I was tasked with working on something that was called the Ideas Council, that was taking uh, product ideas that were kind of bubbling up from across the organization um, and and sort of air traffic controlling those ideas to the right product managers. So within Google, it's a, it's a fairly uh, distributed system where. Um, each product that we know and love, like Gmail to, to Google Maps, uh, is, is generally run by a different product manager with a small organization around that product. And so my job was to take some of the feedback that was coming from customers and from uh, different parts of the organization and bubble it up and sort of provide it to the right uh, product managers so that they could you know, listen to the market and iterate on their, on their products. Um, and we didn't see a lot of uh, – we didn't see a lot of – feedback coming from markets like India. And very quickly, people said, well, you know, that's just because the demographic's different. Folks maybe don't have uh, as much interest in providing product feedback from over there. And I said, you know, wait a minute, I don't believe this the cultural bias here, um, that, that they're less interested in providing uh, feedback. It must be something on the ground. And so I uh, actually wrote a long uh, proposal that was about a 20-page uh, PDF that took into account, you know, all the different um, aspects of my uh, my liberal arts background, you know, including uh, writing long-form essays uh, and trying to be as convincing as possible. I put together some graphs to the extent that I knew how to do that. And uh, I started having coffees with uh, various leadership around the organization. I started scheduling coffees with directors and, and vice presidents at Google, you know, as a 22-year-old. And I think that takes a bit of chutzpah and, uh, and perhaps, um, you know, brazenness that I think uh, you learn through uh, gaining the confidence of, of, a, of a broad-based education where you think, well, I have something to say. I, I can be convincing in how I say it, and I'm, I'm going to go uh, try to convince folks that my perspective is, is right. And I think they, they looked at this uh, young kid and they said, you know, go back to your desk for a few months. And then I started to get a little more consideration. Um, and after about three months of, of peddling this, uh, this PDF, they sent me to India for a year. Um, and so I think at that point it was really um, – uh, an aha moment for me going to India and being able to build out the team and see that the product feedback was, in fact, um, of great interest uh, to that market. It just wasn't being nurtured. Um, and so I think for me, that was something that I realized, um, here's an example of me observing something that nobody else at Google had fought for, um, convincing leadership of, of thinking it's a priority, um, and then getting the sort of nod. Um, and I think to the great credit of an organization like Google, um, providing me the platform to, to go do that. And I think that um, there's, there's another you know, exceptional example of this in the book um, about a friend of mine uh, who many of the, the audience on, on, this, on the show might know. Um, he's a gentleman named Tristan Harris, uh, who's the creator of a, a Netflix uh, show on uh, the sort of threats of technology. But Tristan was similarly asking and probing big questions at Google where he said, you know, we have uh, an obligation as, as an organization, um, whether it's, you know, one of these product managers or a series of five engineers making design decisions around the, the button choice on Gmail. You know, if this uh, 
has a one-second latency, um, and that is multiplied by a billion users of Gmail, uh, this has a fairly large social cost. And so do we have a moral obligation to ask certain design questions within within the company? And so, and to Google's credit, they didn't uh, quash um, Tristan as sort of this um, modern-day Diogenes walking around the company with his lantern saying, you know, I'm looking for an honest product manager. I'm looking for uh, folks that uh, really are going to ask the, the right questions here. They promoted him. They said, why don't you become our in-house product philosopher? Why don't you go around the organization and ask these big questions? And uh, we agree with you that this is something that's important. And so I think that um, those were certain certain elements on my journey um, of, I think, finding this empowering uh, skill set that was really born out of being able to read and write um, convincingly and to, to grapple with ambiguity and to take uh, take feedback well, um, listen, and uh, remain flexible and, and, and iterate. And I think that those are all characteristics of uh, grit and fortitude, you know, and I think these are broader questions of how we train that. But I think that, um, you know, for example, uh, I was giving a lecture a year or so back where somebody asked me, um, how do you learn soft skills? You know, how do you learn empathy? And uh, it was in a small roundtable discussion, and, and somebody shouted out. They said, well, that's easy. You just read books about empathy. And I said, gosh, I don't think that's the right answer. You know, I don't think there is a linear approach to learning empathy. There's an orthogonal approach through reading books, uh, great literature, reading books that are of a different time and place, um, speaking to people not like yourself, um, really getting outside of your element. But there's no linear approach to learning empathy. And I think that that's something that, when we take a step back and think about the liberal arts and think about um, how we learn things, it's not so simple to just do a problem set or just to do something in a very linear approach to learn something that may require greater life experience. And so how do you provide the, the guardrails and the educational curriculum to give people exposure to things like 18th century literature that put you in a different time and place that teach you the struggles, um, you can't teach somebody guilt, but you can make them read um, Dostoevsky and you can make them understand um, some of the, some of the, 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 the moments that, that of turmoil. Um, and so these are the sort of orthogonal approaches uh, to, I think, how we learn some of these skills. Um, and it's no wonder that uh, there's a great, a great story in the book as well. Um, that you may have come across with uh, Drew Faust, who is the former president of Harvard University. Drew uh, delivered a lecture at graduation to the cadets at West Point. And uh, in her final moments of that speech, she said, you know, I, I encourage all of you to keep a copy of the Iliad under your pillow, you know, the, the great work by Homer um, from, from ancient Greece. And she said, you know, because through the, the dust and danger and disorienting strangeness of life, you can always rely on philosophy. You can always rely on these stories to, to help you look forward. And I thought that that was such a profound uh, statement that oftentimes it requires these very uh, timeless uh, works and, and timeless thoughts to, to be the most timely. Well, we're uh, due for our first uh, break. We're talking with the venture capitalist Scott Hartley. He's author of uh, the book, The Fuzzy and the Techie, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World. And he's the inaugural speaker in Dixie State University's Human Tech Speaker Series. That's part of their move to Utah Tech University and a human-centered approach to technology mission. The lecture is 4 p.m. on February 10th, coming up this Thursday, uh, Dixie State University campus in the Dolores Story Eccles Fine Arts Center Concert Hall. It's a free public event. All are invited to attend. We'll have much more following this brief break. This is Science by the Slice. Once considered relatively rare, dengue fever is popping up throughout the globe, including the United States. Most people infected with the mosquito-borne virus recover, but the disease can cause lethal complications. Curiously, while people who have recovered from the virus develop immunity to the strain that infected them, they've often become more susceptible to infection by different strains of the virus. USU data scientist Kevin Moon is a part of a multi-institution team developing deep neural networks to extract detailed data from large data sets collected from infected people in an effort to find preventative measures and therapies. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu slash science. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with uh, Scott Hartley. <clears throat> He's a venture capitalist who worked as an investment partner on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley. He's uh, also is a presidential innovation fellow at the White House, part of venture capital. Uh, Hartley worked at Google, Facebook, and Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society. And his book is The Fuzzy and the Techie, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World. He's coming to Dixie State University on Thursday as a part of their Human Tech Speaker Series. That's part of their move to Utah Tech University. Uh, The lecture is 4 p.m., February 10th, Dixie State University campus. Uh, It's a free public event. All are invited to attend. So, Scott Hartley, you made reference to automation. I want to tackle that right now. If we look to the future, there there, there is a a study that uh, some people reference, uh, sort of a doom and gloom reference. Uh, That study said uh, perhaps up to half of our jobs in the future would be taken over by robots and automated um, what, what say you, what, what's the likely future? Well, thanks Tom for, for having me on the show. Um, yeah, it's a study that, uh, folks tend to refer to as an Oxford study from a few years back that, uh, as you, as you said, um, alludes to, uh, you know, 50% of, of U.S. jobs at high risk of, of machine automation. And, uh, I think this was sort of the high point of the pendulum swinging toward fear, uh, you know, between hope and fear, uh, as, as it always does in technology. And, um, I think since then we've, we've sort of, uh, come back to the center a bit more. There was a subsequent study, um, in 2017 that McKinsey and company provided where they said, you know, wait a minute, um, let's, let's look at jobs. Um, holistically, we, we, we tend to think of, of jobs as, as sort of monolithic creatures, um, but really jobs are a subset of many, many tasks. And as we all know, um, our jobs consist of, you know, hundreds of different tasks. And so what McKinsey did was they looked under the hood of uh, different jobs and they said that actually, um, you know, there is a certain subset of jobs that certainly have a high proportion of tasks that are rote and routine um, and are subject to some form of machine automation over time. Um, I think the timeline as to when that happens uh, is, is up for debate. Um, but what they found was about 5% of U.S. jobs had a high proportion of tasks that were subject to some form of machine automation. And I think that when you know when we think about automation, um, we, we tend to use term, terms like robots and like machine learning. Um, and if you think about the, the forms of automation, robotics is really about um, automating uh, physical physical tasks, right? So if you're doing something that's rote and repetitive in a physical form like bolting uh you know a door onto a car that's something that over time there will be uh there will be a threshold at which the investment in technology will probably outweigh um the the continuing um paying paying for human labor to do that that repetitive job right so within a certain set of tasks um manual tasks robots will be um making inroads and i think within a certain set of cognitive tasks um when we think about cognitive tasks we already have many forms of automation you know we forget that in the 1940s, 1950s, there was actually a job that was called calculator. Um, this was not a, a machine. It was not a tool. It was a job title. And so, um, you know, of course, calculators became uh, machines uh, because they were rote and repetitive actions that humans need not do. Um, and we moved up the stack. You know, we moved up to higher um higher human cognition tasks. And I think that what's really uh, an optimistic take in my personal perspective is that um, when we think about the subset of tasks um, within jobs that are subject to machine automation, whether we call it robotics because it's manual or machine learning because it's cognitive, um, what we're really doing is allowing human beings to become more human, right? We're taking away the very rote and routine aspects of that person's job, um, and we're supplementing them with, with technology. And so I think there's a very doom and gloom uh, in a word when we, when we talk about artificial intelligence and this sort of notion that um, the robots are coming, um, or the rise of the robots in uh, Martin Ford's uh, great book from a few years ago. Um, but really, um, this, this debate goes back to the 1950s um, at, at MIT, where uh, two uh, computer scientists um, debated sort of this idea of AI versus human-computer interaction. Uh, J.C.R. Licklider was, was one of the two gentlemen, and Marvin Minsky was the other. And I'd encourage you know, listeners to go back and look at their debates because they're very similar to today's uh, debates, where the question is, is it AI or is it IA? Is it um, artificial intelligence or is it intelligence amplification? 
And I think that um, what I what I see happening in the future is more of this intelligence amplification. Um, you know, and whether we look at jobs like uh, like legal jobs or um, often an often cited example is radiologists. You know, are radiologists all going to go away because suddenly we can use uh, computer vision to analyze um, you know images of of, of, of X rays? Um, and when you talk to most radiologists, and when you um, actually talk to experts looking at the technology, they say. Of course, there is some subset of, uh, of highly black and white uh, examples of certain cases where machine vision can make inroads and save that doctor time. But really what it does is it saves that doctor time so that they can um, spend more time with patients. They can develop more bedside manner. They can uh, spend more of their cognitive abilities to look at corner case situations that aren't so black and white. And so really it's about intelligence amplification um, and IA more than I like the term AI. I want to talk about uh, education. Uh, of course, there's a big push for STEM. Uh, you know, there's some virtues in that, but I wonder, and we're talking about the, the virtues of liberal arts and uh, how liberal arts are valuable, including in tech. Uh, uh, can we emphasize STEM too much? Is, is there a possibility of taking that too far? You know, it's a, it's a great debate, and I think that... Um, Obviously, the, the Fudgy and the Techie as a, as a book is, is rooted in hundreds of examples of technologists, right? So the book is, is really, uh, it's a defense of technology, but it's sort of taking a, a look at the counterintuitive truth that under the hood of technology, um, technology is not agnostic. It's not something that just happens in the abstract. It's built by people and is largely um, people-centric and values-dependent, right? And so who are the people building our technology, and how are they asking the questions of data, of uh, sensitivities within how an algorithm makes decisions? Um, I think when you take a step back and you think about these terms um, in, uh, in more pedestrian ways, for example, we think about um, artificial intelligence. Um, but if we take a step back and think about it, what it is is it's, it's creating a set of um, if this, then that statements, right? It's setting uh, a, a set of, of choice architecture, if you will, within within a product. And so there, there was a great study um, a couple years back. Um, I happened to live in, in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm a frequenter of, uh, of taxi cabs. And I noticed a few years ago that the, the buttons in the back of a taxi had changed. Um, so the buttons on the screen um, have different default tip amounts in the default tip amounts have changed from 15, 20, and 25 percent uh, to 20, 25, and 30 percent. Now, these were uh, minuscule changes in, in, the, in the interface design, um, but two uh, very enterprising uh, economists, uh, one of them at New Chicago and one of them at, uh, at Columbia, said, you know, I wonder what impact this had on actual tips for drivers. And what they found was that by changing the buttons in the back of a taxi cab, the uh, annual increase for tips for drivers went up by $600, not because people were necessarily uh, you know, getting better service or better rides, but because people default to the menu of choices that they have in front of them. And most people say, well, you know, I don't have a lot of extra money. Uh, the ride wasn't exceptional. Maybe they don't deserve the top tip, but I'm not a cheapskate. I'm not going to click the bottom button. I'll hit the middle one. And so the default tip went from the middle button being 20% to the middle button being 25%. And I think this is a really good example of choice architecture and how technology actually drives outcomes. Um, we might think that we're independent actors in the world making independent decisions, but really what we are are people that are um, interfacing with a series of menus throughout our day, whether it's where the apps are on our screen how the orientation of restaurant choices might be within a, a seamless or a uh, you know an ordering um, app on your on your phone. So really, what we're doing is navigating through a series of menus that are predetermined, and these menus are driven by the choices of people. And those people work at these large tech companies. And so I think taking a step back and asking the question and having the sort of consciousness of uh, uh, of, of societal minds to ask these large questions of, of, you know, how are these choices being made? Who is in the room making these choices? Um, what is the diversity in that room of, 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 of people and, and thought and backgrounds and perspectives? Um, because the notion that we just take data and pump it into an algorithm and it comes out objective is, is patently false. Right. And so I think there, there are many, many examples of this, um, and I could, I could go into others, but it's, uh, it's really 
it really behooves us to, to ask the question of how do we how do we provide uh, smart thinkers and smart questioners within these companies? And and what is fascinating is this is a, a debate that we're having today, but this is actually if you go back to uh, the writings of Sir Francis Bacon or the writings of even Plato. Um, he made uh, a statement saying that data is not the same thing as information, is not the same thing as wisdom. It's about how you ask the right questions. And so, you know, my question uh, is, you know, how do we provide more people in these companies asking the right questions? And I think we do that through training, um, training and hiring folks that are critical thinkers, that have the skills uh, and the confidence um, to, to, to ask the right questions of, of our technology. Let's take another uh, break. Uh, we're talking with a venture capitalist, Scott Hartley. He's author of the book, The Fuzzy and the Techie, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World. And uh, he's uh, coming to uh, Dixie State University uh, in St. George uh, as the inaugural speaker in their Human Tech Speaker Series. It's part of their move to Utah Tech University. Um, and the lecture is 4 p.m., February 10th, Dixie State University campus in the Dolores Dory Echoes Fine Arts Center Concert Hall. It's free and open to the public. Uh, you're invited to uh, attend that uh, lecture. We'll have more following this break. The Utah legislative session is well underway. Governor Spencer Cox has signed at least nine bills into law. High up on lawmakers' priority lists are air quality, education programs, tax cuts, infrastructure, water, clean energy, and affordable housing. Join Utah Public Radio for coverage of the 2022 legislative session from the UPR Newsroom. It's time for Utah Public Radio's annual Art Mug Contest, and we're asking for your entries now through February 18th. You can use any artistic medium for your design. Just show us what you love about UPR, our programming, or our station's home here in Utah. You'll all get to vote on your favorite design, and the winner will be printed on this year's mug, available during our spring member drive. For more details, go to upr.org, and to submit, just send your designs to me, katie.swain at usu.edu, by February 18th. Thanks for joining us, Praxis Utah. Our guest for the hour is Scott Hartley. He's the inaugural speaker at Dixie State University's Human Tech Speaker Series. That's part of their move to Utah Tech University and their human-centered approach to technology mission. Uh, the lecture is 4 p.m. on February 10th, Dixie State University campus, and the, it's free and open to the public. You're invited to, to attend. Scott Hartley is a venture capitalist. He's worked at Google and Facebook and other places um, uh, prior to his uh, work in venture capitalism, a venture, as a venture capitalist. And uh, he is author of the book, The Fuzzy and the Techie, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World. Uh, so I have another 10 minutes or so left with, uh, with Scott Hartley in this interesting discussion. Uh, Scott Hartley, I'd, I'd like to uh, move to algorithms. You have a chapter on this uh, where, you know, everybody's familiar with algorithms. They, they're very useful. We love them and hate them, right? So um, I, I love the title of your chapter, Algorithms That Serve Rather Than Rule Us. What do you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, thanks Thanks again for, for having me. Um, so algorithms are an interesting uh, buzzword, and I think it, it, there's uh, there's always one du jour, right? And uh, we've gone through the, the different uh, the different times and places, and algorithms are one that sort of uh, raise eyebrows uh, in today's world. Um, but I think when we when we look under the hood of, of what is an algorithm, you know, it's really sort of uh, as as I mentioned before, a set of choice architecture of how do we uh, get from point A to B, and what is the what is the algorithm optimized for? And so I think one great example of a company that's uh, reliant on algorithms but not ruled by algorithms is one that uh, some of our listeners may be familiar with. It's a company called uh, Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is a subscription fashion company. It's uh, it's a fashion company that uh, allows you to shop different styles, um, but does so without any uh, shopping cart. All you do is, uh, similar to a Netflix queue, you sort of put in your preferences, you answer a survey, and then an algorithm actually determines uh, what kind of clothing you might you might like. And you might think, uh, wow, this, this seems uh, very futuristic. Um, but what, what's interesting about Stitch Fix is, uh, one, it was founded by a, a woman named Katrina Lake, who was not a technologist. She was a political scientist and uh, an economist um, who really sort of had the passion um, and, and storytelling ability to, to create some incredible hires early in her, early in her days. Um, she, she saw that 
Um, there were two big challenges to building this business. One was on the logistics and supply chain. And so she convinced uh, a man named Mike Smith uh, to come from Walmart.com, where he was COO, to join her while she was still in the dorm room. And she uh, went. She said, "There's another huge component of this, which is the algorithmic discovery of, of of the clothing that I would like." So she went right to the top of Netflix and found a guy named Eric Coulson, convinced him to quit his job as the VP of algorithms at Netflix uh, to go work for her while she was still in her dorm room. And these are examples, I think, of of somebody who had incredible vision, uh, storytelling ability, and and charisma um, that she learned through you know a broad based liberal arts education. Um, to, to pursue this idea. Um, and when she started building uh, Stitch Fix with, with Eric at the helm of the, the algorithm, what they said was, you know, there is something today um, where humans are really good at certain things and machines are really good at other things. And let's not kid ourselves into believing that machines can do everything. Let's build machines and algorithms to do the rote and routine um, aspects of, of our jobs and let's supplement uh, humans. So we mentioned before talking about not AI, but but IA, flipping those letters around and, and talking about intelligence amplification. And what Stitch Fix um, has is not sort of a, a business that's purely run by algorithms. It actually has about 4,000 human stylists that help provide the last mile of fashion delivery. When you order that box of clothes, it comes with five items in there. What really happens before that is the algorithm picks about 10 items of clothing serves those 10 items to a stylist who then looks at your profile and says, you know, based on your demographic, based on your consumer behavior, based on your needs that this is for a date on a Friday night or, or whatever the, the use case might be, they make that last mile set of choices. So really that, that stylist is being informed and aided by an algorithm, but, which is supplementing their own human capabilities uh, to provide that last mile delivery. So I think this is an example to me of intelligence amplification, where it's not about AI or algorithms taking over those people's jobs. It's about those algorithms mitigating some of the bias that those stylists already have. So what's really fascinating about this example is that um, any one of us might make certain biases towards our own set of preferences, where I might have a more classical uh, aesthetic and you might have a more hipster fashion-forward aesthetic. And we each have our own biases. And what's interesting is with Stitch Fix, the algorithm can learn my own personal biases and they can offset the, the 10 items of clothing that I'm, that I'm provided, uh, knowing that I'll, I'll err on the side of being a little more classic or a little more fashion-forward. Um, so it's really about amplifying the incredible uh, human characteristics that that stylist already has rather than trying to take over their job. Uh, I wonder, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I, <laughs> I'm just amazed. She's in her dorm room and she, she convinces these gentlemen to, to join her company. I guess if you have a, a great idea and, and, you've, and you've got the confidence... I guess you got to go get the money as well. That's where you come in venture capitalists uh, as well. Um, so I wonder if you could talk. You, you mentioned Tristan Harris earlier in the program. I'm fascinated by uh, the, the time well spent movement. Could you talk about that? Yeah, Tristan is um, a really, uh, I think he's been likened to a, a modern day Diogenes. For, for those who might remember their, their liberal arts classes and in, in ancient Greece, uh, Diogenes was going around Athens looking for an honest man. I think Tristan has been uh, the philosopher kind of going around the tech world looking for honest technology and sort of pointing the finger um, and shining a light on uh, some of the things that we that we take for granted. Um, one of the things that, that Tristan um, really has, has illuminated um, is that, you know, we, we tend to think of uh, you go to you know, from Dixie State, a short drive down to Las Vegas, where you might find uh, a series of slot machines. Um, and those slot machines at one point were known as one-armed bandits, where you pull down on the lever on the side, and that one arm uh, steals your money, right? And uh, those one-armed bandits are now um, one-finger bandits in our pockets in the form of our mobile devices, where um, there's sort of the choice architecture baked into these menus of, of how we navigate technology lend themselves uh, to us spending more and more time on these devices. And so Tristan really pointed um, at some of the some of the realities that, you know, we are um, independent people making independent choices, but it's really an uphill battle when on the other side of the phone, 
are a thousand engineers optimizing for every outcome that means you spend more time on Facebook or you spend more time scrolling Instagram? And how do they dangle more candy in front of you to, to keep you there for longer? And these are sort of driven by the business models and ad models um, that, that drive the economics of these companies. And so Tristan really, um, in the time well spent movement, um, pushed on these questions and actually created meaningful change. I think Tristan's movement really helped uh, create the uh, set of alerts on your iPhone that say, set a limit of 30 minutes on Instagram and, and notify me, provide a nudge um, that says, hey, is this really how you want to be spending your time today? Um, that's an intervention. That's uh, something that um, we can sort of rebel against this one finger bandit in our pocket. And I think we've all been, uh, you know, on a, on a Friday night where you turn on Netflix and, uh, you, you know, you get the, the automatic countdown where the episode ends and then suddenly the default is that the next episode will start in, you know, three, two, one, and suddenly, you know, you've been binge watched an entire season. Um, these are the choice architecture um, elements that, you know, technologists are, are embedding into our technology. And so, as we talked about before, I think it's really having the, the reality and, and understanding that um, technology by itself, whether it's big data, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's autonomous vehicles, um, none of these things are agnostic or values independent. They're all values dependent and they're reliant on the people that work at these companies and the questions that society and, and, and us, you know, as a, as a society, uh, pose to them. And so, um, you know, back to the sort of thrust of the book in the defense of the liberal arts, um, the defense of, of critical thinking and smart questioning in a world where we think that we have all the answers on the Internet. Um, how many times have you sat before the Google with the clicking, uh, the blinking cursor and you say, gosh, at my fingertips, I have all of the world's information um, organized and accessible for me, but I just don't know what question to ask. Yeah, it was certainly true. You, you've, you've quoted Voltaire, judge a man by his questions, right? Absolutely. That's, that's one, of, uh, it's one of my favorites. And it's actually, uh, I often am talking to students and I hope to at, uh, at Dixie State or uh, Utah Tech uh, this coming Thursday. Uh, and I say, you know, one of the when when you're in that job interview, uh, one of the the most overlooked aspects is that last five minutes where they say, "Do you have any questions for me?" Uh, and if you don't have any questions, uh, I think you're in for some some trouble because it's about this inquisitive mind, this this curiosity, uh, this flexibility of mind that keeps us adaptable. And we've talked about how you know your degree title uh, is not some one-and-done slip of paper that you can frame on your wall and, and dust off your hands and call it a day. Uh, you know, we launch into this world uh, just like products. We launch into this world in beta. Um, we're works in progress, and we have to continually invest in our education. We have to continually ask uh, the right questions. Um, and I think that that's such a great quote um, by Voltaire that says, you know, judge a person by their questions, not by, not by their answers. Um, and similarly, uh, you know, Tim Cook, uh, the CEO of Apple, he gave a commencement address at MIT a couple years ago where he sort of alluded to this very concept. He said, you know, I'm not worried about artificial intelligence uh, giving computers the ability to think like humans. I'm more concerned with people thinking like computers without values or compassion, without asking the right questions. And so I think that that's really uh, the takeaway for, um, you know, the fuzzy and the techie is, is how do we teach people and provide the tools, um, the educational background uh, for people that continually ask these questions of, of our technology and, and of our society. Just have a couple minutes left. I wanted to just maybe close on, on this idea of learning how to learn, right? An incredible skill, that, that, this idea that we're always in beta, that we always need to be continued uh, learning. Is that itself a skill that we can learn, or is that just a personality that certain people have? You know, it's it's a it's a good question. Um, how do we how do we learn to be adaptable, right? That's that's kind of the question. Um, and I think that uh, you know one of one of the one of the leaders at, at Stanford, we had the chance to have a panel discussion a couple of years back where we had the the head of the computer science department and we had Marissa Mayer, the former um, head of product at Google and, and CEO of Yahoo, and a couple others. And one of the most interesting metaphors that came out of that that conversation was that 
we used to have this idea that your degree was a plane ticket to somewhere in the future. Your, your degree was uh, a plane ticket, and there were sort of different destinations that you could, you could arrive at. Um, and really moving toward thinking about education as a passport rather than a plane ticket. And the passport is about breadth of exposure. It's you have some stamps from all you know six or seven continents, right? You have um, exposure to all these different ideas where you've really provided uh, a bunch of different um, arrows in your quiver or tools in your toolbox where you can be adaptable and you can sort of see uh, the metaphors across uh, sectors and industries. I, I think what's most fascinating to me as a venture capitalist is that the biggest and best ideas typically come from somebody uh, thinking metaphorically and taking a concept that exists in one world and bringing it to another world. And I think that ability, um, that curiosity, that sort of adaptability to, to look at something and say, wait a minute, I think this, this would apply somewhere else that nobody's ever tried before. Um, one example of this, um, maybe an amazing example to close on with, uh, with our great conversation here today, um, is about a woman that I met uh, speaking at the University of Arizona a few years ago. And her name was uh, Katie Kwan. And Katie was a ballerina who actually trained at the Metropolitan Ballet in New York, um, was a professional, incredible ballerina. But she had this passion for robotics. And people said, well, you know, you're a great ballerina, but there's no way you're ever going to become a mechanical engineer and go into robotics. And she, she kept pursuing this passion. Uh, she kept trying to put these two pieces together that people didn't think belonged together. And uh, fast forward to today, she's a PhD student, um, actually in mechanical engineering, but her, her job is a robot choreographer. You know, mm-hmm. we think about sort of the, the death of certain jobs and where will we go in the future. And I think it's an incredible example of we don't know where that future will, will lead. And someone like Katie is uh, creating a whole new category of robot choreography, um, basically providing human gestures and human movements to automatronic uh, robots, you know, providing end-of-life care, for example, in hospitals where trust is a big piece, uh, trust and, uh, and care. Um, and so it makes sense that you would have a ballerina, somebody who understood grace uh, and movement, uh, to work with engineers to provide um, a robot that did something just a little bit more gracefully, that provided a little bit more empathy or a little bit more care for that person um, you know, in, in need. And I think these are great examples of, of flexibility, of, of sort of metaphorical thinking and bringing learning from one uh, discipline to another. And I think with that, um, you know, the opportunities of the future are, are incredibly bright, um, you know, despite this the pendulum swing and the fear of, of robots and AI. Um, I think we can remember that it's really about intelligence amplification and how do we um, ask the right questions of our technology to take it forward. Well, we've been talking with Scott Hartley. He's a venture capitalist. His book is The Fuzzy and the Techie, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World. There's a website for the book, fuzzytechie.com. Uh, he'll be at uh, Dixie State University in St. George uh, to give a speech, uh, 4 p.m., February 10th, on the Dixie State campus, free and open to the public. Scott Hartley, it's been uh, such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah today. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide member-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org or on the UPR app.